Good morning. Um, this morning, um, speaking of rescue, my uh, prayer kind of for us this morning and where you are um, is that the God who frees um, is freeing you now. Whatever you need to be rescued from, whatever you need to be freed from. We're continuing our service this morning, uh, continuing our theme, continuing our, our series on Acts, the church then and now. And kind of what we've been trying to hold on to is this idea is what do we learn from the church back then that, that really helps us now? And the story this morning is a good one. It's one of these ones that are easy to preach, right? It's about Peter's rescue, Peter's escape from prison. Um, and what's interesting about this is that it's kind of like the, the book of Acts, right? If you look in your Bible, the subtitles will say Peter's escape from prison. But if you read the story, you're familiar with the story, you kind of realize that Peter doesn't really do much, right? It's, it's God who's moving. It's the spirit who's directing. It's an angel who actually comes to Peter and basically does all the work, kind of mirroring our lives, right? Where we kind of think of ourselves as the central character, but it's God who's moving. It's God who's working. It's God who's leading. So even though we call this Peter's escape from prison, Peter don't do much. And that's okay. Because our God is a God who rescues. This week in a, the blog I sent out, usually every week I talked about that, about how God rescues us, how God protects us, how God hears our prayer. What a wonderful God we have, right? That you can sit and just pause with that, that God rescues us, God hears our prayer, God protects us. And I, I think at the end of that blog, I quoted a song by Lauren Daigle, and it's a song called Rescue. And I love this because in the chorus, she says this over and over, right? I hear you whisper underneath your breath. I hear your SOS your SOS. I will send out an army to find you. In the middle of the darkest night, it's true. I will rescue you. Let's all go home. That's easy, right? That's just easy to preach. But the thing is, I was thinking about that because I ended the, the, the blog kind of re-quoting that song about how saying that no matter where you are, you know, God's rescue will come. But as I thought about it, and then Pastor Lynn actually pointed out, I was like, maybe we should have changed that a little. Because here's the thing about God's rescue, is that yes, God's rescue will come. It's true, God will rescue you. But there's a couple different nuances that life throws at us, right? Because God's rescue sometimes may look different than we think. I have a friend, Samuel, who's a leader in the Church of the Brethren, and he talks a lot about how in Nigeria, there's all these militant groups who are going after the church. You might remember a couple years ago when we had a hashtag trending about Save Our Girls. Those were all girls who were either in the Church of the Brethren church, an Anabaptist church, or they're in a region that had a bunch of Anabaptist Church of the Brethren churches. And in that same region, there was a pastor by the name of Bullis Yakura on Christmas Eve was kidnapped in his village. And the church gathered, and the church prayed, and the church relied on God. And for months, they didn't hear from him. But they still gathered, they still prayed, they still relied on God. And then a, a week in February, they get a video message from, from this pastor, Bullis Yakura. And in the message, he says, you know, I need the, the, the government to intercede. I know the church has been interceding, but I need the government to intercede. Because if you don't come and help me, I don't know what they'll do to me. And in the video, you can see how malnourished he was, how hungry he was, how tortured he was. And it was so bad that his children wouldn't go to school anymore and his wife couldn't do anything. Yet a week later, he shows up. No one knows how he's rescued. All they know is that the church prayed and God came through. And it wasn't on their timing at Christmas Eve. It was months later in March. But God rescued and it was a way that wasn't coming. And that one is also easy to preach. The one that's harder to preach is the times where God's rescue may not come. I have a picture I want Andrew to put up real quick. We're going to go back in some fashion here, so get ready. 
Um, so in this picture, um, I can't see, I don't know, this is the best angle, all right. Um, the tall girl in the middle, these are all me and my cousins, right? Tall girl in the middle is Sarah Jane. We call her Mommy J. As you can tell, she's the boss. She was the one. I have lots of cousins. Like, if you don't, you think you have a lot of cousins, you don't. <laughs> like, whatever amount of cousins you have, I probably have 10 times the amount. I'm not even kidding, right? But in this crew of cousins, in this arm of the family, she was the boss lady, right? Like, she was the one tasked with getting all of us in line, right? Which is why we never dared call her Sarah. We call her Mommy J. Like, she was the boss lady, right? Um, my, my cousin to the, I guess my, her far right, I don't know, the yellow, right? Um, every now and then on Twitter, probably about three, four times a year, it trends about how black people look really good in yellow, right? It's like we are, melanin just works well, I should have wore yellow today. Our melanin just works well with yellow. And I want to point out that my cousin Melvin was, was creating trends back in the late 80s, right? Like he didn't even know this would trend almost 30 years later, but that's what that man was doing, right? Um, in the middle, the stylist, you know, got my old man going on with the matching shirt and pants with the athletic socks into the dress shoes. That's me. <laughs> very fashionable, very fashionable. The last two people I want to point out, though, are my cousins, A.B., so my family calls me H.B., and so A.B.'s in the gray. I don't know what his mom dressed him. He looks like he's going to school, um, but that's A.B., and then to the, my left, I think that is, in all white, is my cousin, Pape, which is, um, <laughs> You know how when babies are born, sometimes they look like old men? In my culture, we have no qualms with pointing out things that are wrong with you and doing it in a loving manner. So this child was born, and they thought he looked like an old man, so for the rest of his life, they called him Pape, which in my culture means old man, so that's Pape. I wanted to put this picture up, though, because when I talk about rescue, a lot of you who've been here before, you heard my story, right? Like, I was a child in Liberia, Civil War came, and my grandma packed me up and left, right? It's my rescue story, because that one's easy to preach. The harder part is when rescue doesn't come. Because you see, my grandma, which is really fascinating to me, um, when she married my grandfather, who was a Muslim chief, right? She's a Muslim chief's wife, yet all her kids are Christian. And it's this really fascinating thing to me, because she goes to sleep, and she wakes up. This is before the age of the internet. This is in 1989. You know, this is West Africa. Our family had lots of connections, but this one came direct from God. And she has this vision. And in this vision, you know, she gets a messenger who tells her, listen, I need you to gather up all the grandchildren. I need you to leave now. So my grandmom gathers up all her children and says, we need to leave now. And my mom is the only one who listens. What happens here in the story is that I leave with my grandmom and another one of my younger cousins, small ma, she was small, um, and, and, and um, mommy Jay is able to, to leave with her mom and she gets kind of stuck in one neighborhood, Melvin's stuck in another neighborhood, A.B. and Pape are brothers and they're stuck in that neighborhood. They're actually stuck in this house that we're in, which is my grandfather's house. And what happens when the rebels come, you have to understand the Liberian Civil War, the reason it took so long is because every time the rebels would, would conquer an area, they would splinter off and then fight among each other. When they finally got to the capital city where we were in this picture and where A.B. and Pape were, they had splintered the, 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 the capital city so much that no one could get in and no one could get out. But even worse than that, no food could get in and no food can get out. And it was so bad that you couldn't leave your house. And so my grandfather was a farmer, so we thought we were good for a while. But after a couple months, you tend to run out. And the reason you couldn't go out is because there were so many different splintered groups. 
You never knew who could be outside your house. And you never knew which group they were from. And they would ask you a question, and they would literally kill you depending on your ethnicity, depending on your family last name, depending on you not recognizing who they were, even though we're Liberians and we all look the same, if you didn't recognize what group they were with. And when I think about my rescue story, I think about rescue not coming. I think about being seven years old and hearing that my cousins, A.B. and Pape, had starved to death. And I remember, I remember as a seven-year-old, not understanding it, but knowing that because they died and they needed food. I remember going um, <laughs> to the backyard. I remember digging a hole. <laughs> my grandma didn't like this very much. And I dumped a whole plate of food, and I covered it up. And I'm glad that I'm now older and wiser in my faith and know that they're in heaven. They're eating better than I ever ate. But at the time, I wanted them to just eat something. So this morning, we are going to talk about rescue. I think it's important to talk about rescue, holding on to this idea that our idea of rescue may not always be God's idea. And you'll see it in the story, even though it's a story about Peter's great rescue. It starts off in the beginning with James, who doesn't see rescue. And we have to hold that. We have to hold that how God works, we don't know. We have to hold that how God heals, how God saves, we don't know. But I think the thing that we need to realize about our God, though, is that when he does rescue, it points to his goodness, and also that even when he doesn't rescue the way we see fit, that our God is still good. That our God is still good. Amen? Every Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Now that we got you all crying, we're ready to preach, you know. Uh, I'll start at verse 1. Do I have a different translation? You had 12.1 or 12.3. All right, I'll start at 1. We'll jump in at 3. So you just pause. If you have your Bibles, you're good. I'll start at 1. She started at 3. I think I changed it this morning. Um, it was about that time that King Herod arrested the, some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Verse 3. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, also known as Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. It passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. 
Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door. They said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, the brother of Jesus, and the other brothers and sisters about this. He said, and, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Let's pray. Our God who rescues, rescue us today. Our God who saves, save us today. Our God who loves, love us today. Our God who touches, touch us today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in this room. We thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for living inside of us and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Help us to know that we've been rescued so that we can rescue others. Help us to know that we've been loved so that we can love others. Help us to know that we can pray because you, God, hear our prayers. And Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Even when we don't understand what happens, even when we can't accept what happens, even when we don't know what's going to happen, even if we don't trust where we are or what's happening, you, our God, are good. And we thank you for that. In your holy and precious name, amen. So what happens is the last time I think I preached, we were talking about Cornelius. And in Cornelius' story, you have this double vision between Peter and Cornelius. And in this double vision, which is one of my favorite visions, because now we're allowed to eat cheeseburgers, right? Like Peter has this vision about all these animals that he wasn't going to eat and they were unclean. And God says, no, 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 nothing I say is clean can you call impure. And it's part of not just eating cheeseburgers or seafood. It's part of this greater calling that God is making to Peter that like you have separated as Jews and Gentiles. And we even see in the book of Acts, they separated as, as Jew Jews and Hellenistic Jews, right? But God is saying, you had separated. And I think this will preach too to us because we live in a culture and a society that loves to tell you all the ways we're different. And God seems to show no partiality. And God seems to show no favoritism. And God says to Peter, I am the God of all. And in the story of Cornelius, it's not just this one Roman centurion who's coming to faith. It's this idea that everyone in this household can come to faith. And the Jews or the Jewish Christian are astonished because God comes down in the form of the Holy Spirit, not just on them who thought they had the ownership of God, but on the Gentiles too. Uh, a, a nice little kick, a nice little reminder to us that God is already working and moving in this world. And if we just ask him to give us eyes to see, we can see it. But God doesn't just belong to H. Beck. Praise God. God doesn't just belong to the brethren in Christ. Praise God. God doesn't just belong to Christians. Praise God. He's the God of all. It's just whether or not they choose to accept that. But every knee will still bow, amen? He's still the God of all. And so Peter, after he comes out, he goes before his, his Jewish brothers and sisters and says, like, let me tell you the story of what happened. And they're like, wait, but you were hanging out with Gentiles. Like, you invited them into your house? Like, what's going on? He goes, no, 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 no. God told me he's the God of them too. God told me he belongs to them too. You should have seen the Spirit come down on the Gentiles. And the church's reaction is to what? Praise God that God is the God of all. 
And after this, we learn about the church in Antioch. And Pastor Woody loves to say, like he used to love to say, whenever he got up here, now he don't get up here no more. <laughs> but he used to say how when he thinks of our church, he thinks of us as the church of Antioch. And there's so many beautiful things about Antioch. We know about the church of Jerusalem. We see them as the, the seat of power. We see them as where the early church started. This is where everything is, Jerusalem. But I would agree with Pastor Woody, and I would argue the church really looks like the church at Antioch. Not just because it's born out of persecution, but because it's born out of intentional, multicultural, beautiful picture of the kingdom. Antioch had people from every nation, every tribe, every color. Antioch had a, a man by the name of Simon from Niger, or Simon the Black, Simon Niger, right? They couldn't come up with more better nicknames, so they called him Simon the Black. I just feel like that would give me a, a concept, or I would need a therapist if they would call me Henry the Black, but that's just me. Simon the Black was there, right? But the thing that I love about Antioch wasn't just that it's this multicultural church, but Scripture tells us in the book of Acts, this is the first place that the believers who had gathered stopped being Jews who were rebelling, and it's the first place they're called Christians. I think there's something significant about that, that God waits 12 chapters, 11 chapters, I think it's in Acts 11, and he talks about all these different groups coming together, and at this point, they're just groups coming together or small groups coming together, but they're not Christians until they reach Antioch. And I'm not saying multicultural churches are the best or the best or what the church really is, but I think God might be saying it. That's just me. I could be wrong, but that's just what I read. But also in Antioch is where Barnabas has to vouch for this guy named Saul, the guy who is persecuting and killing them and, and jailing them. And what I love about Barnabas is that, and this is actually a challenge to us on our Christian faith, where we stand up for others, right? It's not just enough to say like, oh, I'm going to stand up for this person or this person might be good. Barnabas invites him alongside. Barnabas serves in Antioch, then invites Saul on Antioch, and you would even say that the Apostle Paul actually becomes the Apostle Paul where? At Antioch. And it shows you that in our lives, we might have a bunch of different people who come and go, who influence us different ways. We may never know what God has for us in the future, but every single interaction matters. Every single relationship you have matters. Every single way you're pouring into other people, it matters. It is not your job to know the fruit that will come. It's not your job to know how it will work out. But it is your job to be faithful. Aren't you grateful this morning that Barnabas was faithful? Because if he wasn't faithful, I think we would still be talking about Saul and his conversion. And his story might have ended there. And Antioch, of course, becomes the first church that's a missionary church. And they send out Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, and becomes Paul. So I think all these things are happening, and they're all good things. They're called Christians. It's multicultural. Like, they're growing. And it's in the midst of all of this that Acts 12 happens. In Acts 12, we find out in the very beginning that Herod has come to the throne. This is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. This is a great continuation of the evil Herods, right? But this Herod was interesting because his grandmother was actually Jewish. So he was in that perfect little milieu of like, he's Jewish enough to be accepted by the Jews. But he's Roman enough to have the power of Rome. So far in the story of, of the early church, even in Jesus' day, you see the Jews pleading to Rome for help to do evil, right? For help. But Herod sits in the throne of power where he's a Jew, kind of a Jew, you know. But he's also so Roman that, like, he doesn't need to plead to Rome because Rome gives him the power. And what's interesting is I love when people read this stuff and they're just like, I just can't believe a king would persecute the church. 
And I'm like, have you looked around your world? Have you looked around your world and see what governments are doing to the church? Have you looked around your world and see what governments are turning their back on to the church? Even in our Western setting, England, which people would say is not even the closest to Christianity. At one point, it was the center of Christianity. And there's Mary who persecuted the church. And there's a guy named Henry. I don't know why he ruined the name, but there was a guy named Henry who was king who also persecuted the church. They were known to burn people at the stake here in our Western context. So it's not just the world over that, that governments persecute the church. I, I kind of get, I have to be honest with you this morning. I feel very honest. I get frustrated when Christians in America complain about persecution. I get really frustrated, right? For us, our persecution is like, they can't tell me what to do. For some persecutions, for some Christians, their persecution is they won't let me live. They won't let me breathe. They won't let me see my family. They won't let me eat. If I say I choose to follow Jesus, I lose everything. And we can theologize all that one. It's like, yeah, you lose the world, but you gain your soul. But there's a human pain of losing everything. So I'm not saying your persecution doesn't matter. I'm not saying your rescue doesn't matter. I'm just saying let's give ourselves a little context before we as American Christians claim persecution and we claim all the ways the government is hurting us and oppressing us. Let's give ourselves a little context and realize that we can breathe here. We can gather here. We can say the name of Jesus here. We can even eat here. There's some of you who's eating right now in the service. So I'm not talking about y'all. I'm talking about the people watching at home, sitting on the couch, <laughs> drinking their coffee, right? I just think it's good for us to have that context because it's in this context that Herod looks around and he sees the Christians as a threat. And Luke is a brilliant writer, and you see this in Luke's gospel too, but you see it here in Acts, right? He's going to be pitting this idea that Jesus is king, right? And it's almost like Jesus is spitting in the face of Rome. I don't know why Jesus would do such a thing, right? Like you think Jesus would like, like authorities and, and, and the kingdoms, but he seems to not like kingdoms. Seems to not like world powers. Weird, right? But Luke is kind of contrasting this thing of like, Jesus is really king, but they think they're king. Jesus has all the power, but they think they have the power. Herod thinks he's king, and as a king, he does this political thing. He sees the church as a threat, and what he's going to do is, you don't go after the big dog first. You try the little guy, or someone who's kind of popping up on the radar. And so when Herod executes James, and I have to pause here because it gets confusing. There's a lot of James, right? And this, is, this makes me feel at home when I read scripture, and there's like similar names with different people. That's how my family operates, right? In my family, if you go to a reunion with me, you say, Daniel, I'm not kidding. You're talking to 20 different people. Like, we will literally be like, which Daniel? You know, do you mean Daniel? Do you mean Junior? Do you mean Dean Francis? Do you mean Francis? Do you mean Frank? Do you need Danny? Which Daniel are you talking about? And that's just six I named, right? Off the top of my head, which is kind of scary. But that's what happens in the story. There's a lot of different James. The James we're talking about who's executed by Herod is actually a significant James, because he's one of the bow energies, right? Like he's one of the brothers, James and John are these brothers who kind of form Jesus' inner circle. And again, if we do the big picture, right, Jesus spoke to tens of thousands, you know, maybe thousands are saved, right? He sends out 72, he disciples 12, you know, 11 mostly got the message. And then there's this inner circle of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That's the James that gets killed. So this is like a small leader, necessarily in the upfront leader, but this is someone who was crucial to the early church. This is someone who was in Jesus' inner circle. 
And before we get to Peter's rescue, we learn that Herod does the thing of like, I'm going to kill him before I get to the big dog and see how it goes. I know our politicians never do that, right? They never try that stuff on us. They'll try a little bit like a little policy here and see how it goes and then big one. But that's what he does. And killing Christians is his policy. And so after he does that, the crowd actually loves it. And then he goes after the big dog, Peter. I think what's interesting is Luke then shows you how the contrast with Jesus, whereas before it was like faint and you have to look really hard to see it, now it's not hard to see it. Peter is captured on the same weekend or same week that Jesus is captured during Passover. Peter is in prison and under trial the same way Jesus was in prison and under trial. Peter is going to wait for his fate because remember when Jesus, when, when Pilate gets out, he comes before the people, right? And he says, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? It's the same thing. And Luke is saying, oh my goodness, look what happened. So we go from, do you know Jesus is king? Don't believe earthly powers to do you know that to follow Jesus, it might cost you life and it might cost you doing what Jesus did. Yes, but it also might cost you dying how Jesus died. And that's where Peter is. He's imprisoned. He's heavenly gar heavily guarded. He's not heavenly guarded yet. We'll get to that part, right? He's heavily guarded. By my count, there's 16 people. So not only is he chained to others. I love this because it sets up that he should not escape. Like, that's what Luke is trying to point out. Like, we can just go, oh, an angel came and let him out of jail. You do not understand. They have 16 people assigned to one prisoner. This is the Roman prison system, right? Like, I don't know if you know this. This is the Roman prison system. When they put you in jail, they just threw away the key. Like, we get bad treatment of our prisoners here. The Romans take it to another level. Like, if you're in prison, you're on your own. Let that sink in. How you eat, you're on your own. If you even wash off, if that's even an option, you're on your own. If you survive, you're on your own. In fact, family members, if they didn't come to you with food, you do not eat. So the fact that Rome, or Herod under the auspices of Rome, is able to assign 16 people to Peter for a system that doesn't care about prisons and locks away and throws the keys shows you what Luke is trying to say. is like, there's no reason but God that he escaped. And there's 16 people who are assigned to him, and they chain him, probably by the wrist and the, 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 the feet, and they have four people on each side. And as he's chained, he's awaiting trial, and the church gathers to pray. What a blessing to know that even though they're persecuted, they're praying. Even though they're being hunted, they're trusting God. And what's interesting about this is when they pray, they're praying in faith. And it's not just as theological, like philosophical, like, ah, God will rescue him. Because if you go back to Acts chapter 5, there was a roundup of not just Peter, but all the apostles. And guess what? Those who were in church, well, they weren't in church yet. But those who were gathered and believed, they prayed. Those in the prisons, they prayed. And in Acts chapter 5, rescue came to all those apostles who were rounded up. So when they're praying, they're praying in faith. So it's not just like, God, I hope you do something. It's like, no, 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 God, you did something before. We need you to do something now. And I think that's the way God wants us to pray. Not just thinking like, oh, I hope it works out for the best. But no, 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 no. God, you said you're good. I need you to be good now. God, you rescued us before. I need you to rescue us now. God, you've loved me before. I need you to love me now. I think it's okay to pray back what God has promised us. I think it's okay to pray back what God has already done. Not because God needs the memory jog, but because we do. 
And when we feel weak, we need to remember that he's been there. We need to remember that he loves us. We need to remember that he works for us. We need to remember he's on our side. Amen? And so that's how they pray. And in the middle of the night, this thing I love about this, this actually reminds me of like both Adam when Eve was formed, right? Like he's just knocked out, nothing to do with it. And he wakes up and he's like, oh, wow. Oh, woo. Thank you, Jesus. Right? You don't believe me. In the Hebrew, right, men is ish, right? And guess what woman is? Ish, ah, right? So my Hebrew professor says like when he saw Eve, he didn't have any words. He just says, ah. So they put it together, ish, ah, right? And it also reminds me of Abraham, when God makes a covenant with Abraham to save all of the world, what happens? Abraham does nothing. He falls asleep too, right? And God comes and does all the work. Same thing happens here with Peter. He's knocked out, which I'm like impressed by. Like if I'm chained to four people and waiting my death trial, I don't think I'll be doing much sleeping. But Peter is cool, right? What you have to understand, this is impressive because Peter is not cool. Peter is a hothead. Like they come to arrest Jesus as a whole garrison. He's like, let me take this sword and cut off this man's ear, right? That's Peter. But maybe he grew a little bit, right? But he's knocked out sleeping. And while he's sleeping, God sends this angel, not on Peter's time, not on the church's time, but on God's time. And this angel shows up, and he actually has to wake him up. I'm like, man, this man was in good sleep, right? Like me, a light, I'm good. I'm ready to go. But it is that the angel has to shake him and wake him up. And I love that he sets Peter's free, that the chains fall off. And I love that as he's leading Peter, Peter's like, I must be dreaming, but I like this dream. You know, like some of you have done that, right? Like you ever wake up in the morning, you're like in that half state of dream, but you're like, oh, this one's good. We're going to ride this for a while, right? That's what Peter was doing, I think, right? Like he was just like, you know what? Hmm. Rather than going to my death, this whole angel leading me, let's go, you know? And they go through. And as you see the angel leading Peter to freedom, you see the angel focus on the task at hand. You see him leading past the guards. You see him getting to the city gate. And this gate that leads into the city opens up without any work. It's just God does the miracle and the gate opens up. And Peter's like, we're going to keep riding this wave, you know. And he goes about a block. And then the angel disappears, right? His job was done. <laughs> the angel's like, I'm good. Did my job. And Peter finally snaps out of it. And he goes, oh, whoa, whoa, wow. <laughs> I'm here. And he's free. And I love that when he's made free, he goes back to the church. He goes back to those who've been praying. And what's interesting is, like, I love this because it's so serious. Like, this story, maybe it's because I was reflecting on A.B. and Pape this week, but it just reminds me of my culture. Like, in the midst of the greatest tragedy, we find humor, right? And that's what happens in the story. Like, Luke is like, oh, you got to hear this part. Like, it's almost like Luke is writing, like, yeah, God sent the angel, God saved them. Peter recognizes it's cool, but wait till you hear about Rhoda, right? And so Peter goes, right? We think that where he was stationed in Jerusalem is really close to the city center. So it's really close to a lot of, like, not just powerful, but rich people. And the reason we think uh, Rhoda's, um, um, well, I guess it's John Mark's mom's house is, is wealthy is because, one, she had Rhoda a servant, right? And, two, there's an outer gate that you can knock on while everybody's in the back. Most people didn't have that much. It's like going to the city and saying, like, you have, like, three acres. They're like, wait, what? You got green grass? Like, whoo, look at you, right? Same thing, right? So he goes to the door, and he's pounding on the door, right? And poor Rhoda, young servant girl, she comes out, and she's like, oh, my gosh, it's Peter. And he's like, hi. And she goes, oh, my gosh, it's Peter. She leaves the man at the door. Put that into perspective for a second. He's just been rescued from prison. Herod's probably not going to like this. When if these, maybe a guard wakes up in the middle of the night and sees he's not there, he's not going to like this either. The man's knocking on the door for his life, and she's so excited. 
She runs to the back, like, I know y'all are praying, but what you're praying for, he's out there. And like, you have to forgive them, right, for not having faith. They're like, okay, Rhoda. She's like, no, 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 it's Peter. She's like, okay. No, 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 it's Peter. And he's like, I mean, maybe it's like a vision, you know, like a partition, like a ghost or something. She's like, no, 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 it's Peter. And so they go back, and they open the door, and Peter is there. Their prayers are answered. God has rescued And after the rescue, though, Peter says, I want you to go and tell this story. He knew he had to get out of town. He knew he could no longer be the principal leader of the church. And he introduces us to another James. I told you, they share names all the time, right? This James, we believe, was James the Less or James the Younger. And we believe this James was actually the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to tell this story to James. And I love that because Peter doesn't just bail, right? He doesn't bail of his duties because he's in danger, he passes that baton to James and the other leaders. And for those of us in leadership, that's an important lesson. That all of us, no matter what we're doing, whether it's our job or in our families, we should be training a generation behind us to take over for what it needs to be done, no matter our situation. And that's what Peter does. He, he passes the baton. He says, I need you to tell James what's happened here. And so he goes in, he finds the shelter, Rhoda is overjoyed and overwhelmed, he enters the house, he shares the story, and I think the big lesson I want us to hold on to is that God rescues us so we can rescue others. That's the story, that's the lesson, because we live in a world where shalom has been broken, and a world that needs rescue. Our world is not as it should be. God has rescued us to rescue our world. Our relationships, our families are not what they should be. God has rescued us so we can rescue our world. Our relationship with God is not what it should be. God has rescued us so we can rescue others. Because in our testimony of God's transformation, God's healing, God's power, we can rescue others. And there's many in our world who still don't know God. So it's our job to tell that story. And I think it is not just our world and our families and ourselves who are under chains. It's so many people in the world. And I think just like in the story, you see two times in verse 5 and verse 12, the church gathers to pray. One way we can pray, one way we can rescue others right now is to be committed to pray. One of the things I look forward to heaven, I don't know if you have a list, but I have a list. If you don't have a list, what else are you doing in your free time? I have a list of things I'm looking forward to heaven. And one of the things I'm looking forward to are all the simile innocuous prayers or like the random things that come to mind and you just get this strong feeling you should pray, right? Or maybe it's the intentional prayers that you're like, you know, which I'm going to ask you to do in a second, right? Maybe it's the intentional prayers, but like, I can't wait to get to heaven and see all the ways they were answered. In ways I didn't know, ways I didn't expect, ways I didn't expect, or ways I didn't think God would deliver, and God delivered. But I think just like that early church gathered and prayed, we must be a church that prayed. I'm going to ask Andrew to put up two different websites. Because this week I want to ask you to pray intentionally two different ways. And the first way, this is Voice of the Martyrs, is it's really easy, persecution.com. You know, can't really forget that one, right? But they have something called a global prayer guide. And if you go on there, you can scroll down, you can pick a country, and they'll give you information, and they'll tell you ways to pray for that country. I want you to mark it down. I want you to pray for that country that you pick, whatever country they have on there. I want you to pray for them every single day this week. And then you get to wait till heaven to see how that prayer will be answered. The second way I want you to pray is uh, we're going to put up a second website because, you know, we're just technology this morning. 
is on the Brethren in Christ World mission page, there's a list of what we call our global team, our global workers, right? I want you to pick a missionary or a global worker or a global family, and I want you to pray for them this week, right? I want you to pray for these two groups because we don't know what kind of rescue they might need this week. I don't believe our God works in coincidence, and I don't think I'm that brilliant. And if you put those two together, I come to this thing where I think God wants us to be praying globally, and God wants to be praying for our BIC people. So that's what I'm asking you to do this week. Just like that early church gathered to pray, I want you to gather to pray and to be intentional about praying this week. Because one thing I found is I'm really good about praying for me and mine. You know, like, my kids, covered. You know, like, my wife, double covered, right? But I'm not good about looking outside of me. Actually, the, the church is pretty covered too, right? Those are probably the three things. But anything else, right? Like, I want us to be intentional this week to pray for our global workers and to pray for Christians around the world who are suffering maybe a persecution we don't suffer. And maybe that's a door that God will open. Who knows what God will do with it? But I just want you to commit to pray. Because I believe just like Peter got an angel, angel just means messenger. I think God has called all of you to be angels to this world. I think God has called all of us to be messengers who take out the story of what God's doing, to tell the story of who God is, and to tell the story of how God is moving. And I think our world, not our God, our God's good, but I think our world needs the story of our rescue. I think our world needs the story of our rescue. We're going to do something a little bit different. Before we have a closing song, uh, we have some global workers from HBIC who are actually visiting. Um, and they're here, and I wanted them to share a little bit about, you know, what God's doing, how they've been. Um, Jeff and Katie Lumen family, I want to invite them up right now. Um, if someone can get me a mic. Oh, perfect. Pastor Hannah. Um, so I just want to invite them to share a little bit about, kind of give us a little update about what's going on with them. And then I'm going to pray for them. Um, and then we'll go to the closing song. So it's going to be a little bit rearranged, but you can handle it. <laughs> 